Uh, okay, so uh, I'm happy now to turn the podium over to Travis McMacken and tell us what your topic is. My thanks to the officers of the Carl Barth Society of North America, especially its president, George Hunsinger, for inviting me to participate in this panel. I beg your uh, forgiveness for sounding like I do this morning. Uh, I would tell my undergrads in a case like this that I'm going to be growling at you for a while. Uh, so just try to, my voice, I'm telling you, it's usually the most beautiful voice you've ever heard. Um, but this is what we've got to go with today. My goal in this brief paper is the same goal that animates my new book on Helmut Golwitzer. That book's title is Our God Loves Justice, an introduction to Helmut Golwitzer. Fortress Press published it just in time for the conference. Uh, there are flyers for the book here in the room somewhere if you want to track that down, and you'll be happy to know that it's available in the exhibition hall. And I know I can depend on you all to buy at least one copy later today. Uh, and I suggest they make really great Christmas presents. So if you want to get jump-started on your shopping, uh, you know what to go look for. All right, back to my animating goal. I want to motivate you to encounter Golvitzer for yourself, to hear what he has to say to us, especially to those of us who study Karl Barth, about our theology and how that theology ought to make a difference in our politics. The conviction that undergirds this goal is that the world would be a better place if those of us who are white, male, cisgendered, heterosexual, and bourgeois Bardians were at least a little more like Golvitzer. The title of my talk is Helmut Golvitzer, Forgotten Left-Wing Bardian, and in what follows, I'll speak first about Golvitzer's connection to Bart, second, about what it means to call him a left-wing Bartian, and third, about how Goldwitzer has been forgotten and what we stand to gain by remembering him in our own time. So one, Bartian. Born in 1908, Helmut's starkest childhood memories for, were from the World War I years in his father's Bavarian parsonage. Helmut grew up bringing, breathing the commingled air of traditional bourgeois German nationalism and traditional bourgeois German Lutheran theology. This theology never excited Helmut. He occupied himself instead with folk culture and the German youth movement, even functioning as a messenger boy for the National Socialist Sturmabteilung. Helmut's horizons widened when he went off to gymnasium in Augsburg and then university in Munich where he matriculated in the summer semester of 1928. Already toward the end of his time in gymnasium, Helmut's older brother Gerhard who was already at the University of Munich, introduced Helmut to an exciting new theological movement, dialectical theology. Georg Merz was in Munich at that time, publishing the Zwischenden Zeiten Journal, and with an introduction from Gerhard, Helmut was soon put to work on minor ZDZ assignments. Helmut pursued his university education in the time-honored, peripatetic German manner, spending time also in Erlangen and Jena before finally making his way to Bonn for the summer semester of 1930. There, he met Barth for the first time. By this time, Golwitzer had broken decisively with his earlier nationalism and association with the SA. He burned his related correspondence from that period and dedicated himself to theological study and serving the church. 
Golbitzer took his exams after the 1931-32 winter semester, receiving a rating of excellent in systematic theology and qualifying to immediately begin what we in North America would refer to as his seminary education in Munich. However, Golbitzer was expelled shortly after the beginning of the 1932-33 winter semester when a scandal erupted. A female theological student visited his room under circumstances that would have generated no comment had the student been male. But with this dark mark against his reputation, his career in the Bavarian church derailed, and consequential rupture in his relationship with his father, things looked bleak for Golwitzer. But Bart intervened, arranging for Golwitzer to come back to Bonn immediately and begin work on his doctorate under Bart's supervision. Bart awakened Golwitzer with a telephone call during the night of January 30th, 1933. Hitler had become Germany's chancellor, and that event dominated the next 17 years of Golwitzer's life. It was during the Confessing Church struggle that Bart emerged as more than one theologian among others, and Golwitzer played a supporting role. He published theological essays calling for unity between the Reformed and Lutheran wings of the Confessing Church, as well as essays contesting the Führer principle. The Christian unity enacted by the Lord's Supper was central to Golwitzer's thinking during this period. He completed his dissertation on that subject under Barth and passed his doctoral examination in February of 1937. This work was published by Christian Kaiser in Munich under the title, oh my gosh, I was going to try to pronounce this, but I'm not. Uh, rough and ready English translation, at the table of the Lord, uh, the old Lutheran doctrine of the Lord's Supper in its confrontation with Calvinism as depicted in early Lutheran orthodoxy. So, typical German academic dissertation title. Uh, sadly, not only the title, uh, but the book itself remains untranslated. Golwitzer and Barth were very close. He served as Barth's famulus, or teaching assistant, and he directed the staging of a play that Barth wrote while young. And which Dietrich Bonhoeffer attended on one of his visits to Bart. Golwitzer was also part of the student committee that worked with Bart to determine that Bart's Munster dogmatics needed to be entirely rewritten. And when the first part volume of Die Kirchliche Dogmatik was being prepared for publication, Golwitzer argued in support of placing the extended historical and exegetical discussions in small print. Bart was dismissed from his professorship in Bonn in 1935, and Goldwitzer would succeed him there in 1950, after himself spending five years as a prisoner of war in the Soviet Union uh, during the time period that Bart was giving those lectures in Geneva that we heard about earlier from Keith. Bart was dis uh, read that. Goldwitzer was also selected to be Bart's successor by the University of Basel, although the Swiss Ministry of Education rejected his appointment. Bart attended Goldwitzer's wedding, and Goldwitzer spoke at Bart's memorial service. In his final years, Goldwitzer confessed that he, quote, received the most lasting impression of his life from Bart, end quote. And few have greater claim to the appellation of Bartian, whether through personal or theological association, than does Helmut Goldwitzer. Two, left wing. Karl Barth did not only decisively shape Golwitzer's theology. He also exerted a decisive political influence on the conservative Bavarian pastor's son. 
Consequently, theology and politics always went together for Golwitzer as they had for his Doktorvater. Bart earned the moniker of the Red Pastor of Safenville because of his advocacy for laborers in his congregation and involvement in local socialist politics. Golwitzer recounted that Bart said to him one day, quote, Herr Golwitzer, someone told me you joined in the Internationale at a meeting last night. You're making great progress, end quote. And then when Bart joined the, joined the German Social Democratic Political Party, Golwitzer chided him in turn because of the SPD's reputation for being stuffy and bourgeois in character. We can rightly call Golwitzer a left-wing Bardian then, in the sense of being a Bardian who found himself on the political left. Golwitzer eventually reconsidered his first infatuation with socialism. His ardor cooled, as we might reasonably expect, while he was a prisoner of war in the Soviet Union, where he witnessed the abuses of an authoritarian betrayal of socialism. He did, however, use that time to begin a thorough study of Marxist and Leninist literature that he continued after his release. In the 1950s, Golwitzer was a proponent of a reformed capitalism, regulated and constrained to serve the common good. But he then reconsidered that reconsideration, moving into the 1960s. The text that best captures Golwitzer in this transition period was translated into English by David Carnes and published by Charles Scribner's Sons in 1970 under the title The Christian Faith and the Marxist Criticism of Religion. <coughs> now, Golwitzer became enchanted with the idea of reforming capitalism as he came to perceive the deep and stubbornly immoral, uh, stubborn immorality of its principles. Furthermore, he disliked West Germany's reactionary trajectory, believing that it had squandered a great opportunity provided by the war to hit the restart button and build a new kind of society. Added to these concerns was Goldwitzer's experience of the student protests in Berlin from 1966 to 1968. He became friends with the student leaders like Rudi Dutschke and supported them in their call for a more interdisciplinary and radically democratic approach to university studies. These demands oppose the increasingly vocational, technocratic approach that accomplishes little beyond preparing young people to serve as efficient cogs in the capitalist machine. And then the ecumenical movement, especially the 1968 World Council of Churches Conference in Uppsala, further heightened Goldwitzer's awareness of the capitalist neocolonialism, whereby the global north appropriates for itself the wealth and resources of the global south. The most accessible of Goldwitzer's texts on this material is The Rich Christians and Poor Lazarus, translated again by David Cairns and published by Macmillan, also in 1970. So as the 1970s dawned, Goldwitzer's politics were once again truly leftist, and he became a left-wing Bartian in a second sense by critically assessing the intersection of theology and politics in Barth's thought. He did so in association with Friedrich William Marquardt, who we heard from earlier, and whose uh, habilitation shrift on the subject of Barth and socialism caused a furor in the Barthian community at that time and produced tension especially between Golwitzer and Eberhard Jungel. While Golwitzer did not defend Marquardt on every point, he nonetheless agreed that socialist politics were an important motor in Barth's theology. 
in his Reich, Gottes und Socialismus bei Karl Barth from 1972, of which George Hunsinger published a condensed translation in his Karl Barth and Radical Politics, very recently released and reissued in second edition. There are flyers for that in the room as well. Golwitzer argued that socialism is, quote, a predicate of the gospel, end quote, for Barth, because, quote, God wants socialism, end quote, and not just any socialism, but, quote, the true socialism of the kingdom of God, end quote. Those who would be faithful to the gospel must be partisans of that true socialism. Golwitzer argues that Barth's theology is intimately linked to socialist praxis, furthermore, and that an important part of what motivated Barth's dogmatic turn in the 1920s was the realization that socialist praxis required better theoretical grounding. Nevertheless, Golwitzer criticizes Barth and his own earlier position for vestigial idealism in thinking that right theory will necessarily lead to right practice, right doctrine, to right ethics, as evidenced by the confidence that Barth placed in preaching. Golwitzer chalks this up to Barth's limited reading in the Marxist tradition, where he might have learned that social change requires robust socio-political praxis in addition to and as the concrete embodiment of gospel proclamation. And then also, just as a quick side note, we heard from Keith earlier um, thinking about uh, Barth and the Confederacy and what could have uh, shifted in Barth's later thought. Golwitzer also highlights uh, with respect to Barth and then also with respect to himself and respect to many of us in the room that academic life has a strong and this is a quote from Golwitzer, bourgeois undertow, end quote. <laughs> Three, forgotten, dot, 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 and remembered, question mark? Despite Golwitzer's significance and visibility as a public theologian during his lifetime, his star quickly descended. He last drew a large crowd with his lectures on Luther's small catechism during the summer semester of 1987. After his death on October 17, 1993, the theological news cycle moved on rapidly. Marquardt observed that Goldwitzer's books became hard to find shortly after his death, and more recently Andreas Pangritz has lamented that Goldwitzer, quote, seems to be largely forgotten now, end quote. Aside from a few cheering exceptions on the margins, Golwitzer is best remembered in English language theology as the recipient of criticism in Eberhard Jungel's work, uh, God's Being is in Becoming. It has even become possible to write books on the intersection of theology and politics and Barth's thought without significant engagement with Golwitzer, although I won't name names today. But Golwitzer still has much to teach those of us residing in North America today, especially those of us, as I said before, who are white, male, cisgendered, heterosexual, and bourgeois audience. So if Golwitzer has been forgotten, why should we remember him? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here, very briefly, are three reasons. First, Golwitzer reminds us that we need to resist reactionaries. Political culture in the United States has been predominantly reactionary for a long time, suffering especially from a dominant narrative that binds closely together in unholy alliance the trinity of Christianity, nationalism, and capitalism. 
Golvitzer socialism motivated by, uh, motivated by deep Christian commitment and informed by extensive knowledge of the Western Christian theological tradition reminds us that this alliance is both unholy and unnatural. Second, Golvitzer reminds us to use our privilege to make space for others and to learn from them. He was deeply involved in Jewish-Christian dialogue, and his approach was funded by Martin Buber's notion of encounter between the I and the thou. Golvitzer emphasized that this encounter bridges rather than erases difference, so that others learn to live together in a manner that promotes mutual flourishing rather than uniformity. We see this also in Golvitzer's deep engagement with black liberation theology, and especially in his willingness to learn from James Cone. The importance of and need for white Christian support of the black and Jewish communities is once again at the forefront of the theological task today. Indeed, the Black Lives Matter movement provides us with a crucial theopolitical opportunity. And there's no doubt in my mind that Goldwitzer would support that movement were he with us today. Third, Goldwitzer reminds us not to be afraid to promote democracy with the S and R words, that is, socialism and revolution. While the problem of racism cannot be solved by economics alone, we will never solve it without also casting down the privileged structures enshrined within global capitalism. Goldwitzer emphasized that democracy is only possible and meaningful if tied to material equality. So long as capitalism remains standing along with the privilege that it maintains and legitimates, we have a form of democracy while denying the power thereof. Socialism is the economic system committed to actualizing real, concrete, material democracy, and it may be that a revolution is necessary to get there. Concluding postscript. It turns out that my paper today is something like the Gospel of Mark, in that it has both a short and a long ending. Uh, the paper's original version ended with that suggestive reference to revolution, but then I learned a few days ago that the good folks organizing the AAR schedule had put considerably more time at our disposal than I had planned on. So I decided to unpack Goldwitzer's position on revolution a bit for you, and I will do so by explicating three interpretive theses and my apologies to Dr. White for this last-minute change. First, the question of revolution is ingredient to the gospel itself. As Goldwitzer put it, quote, the Christian faith liberates us, our reason and our will, to fight for socialist world revolution, end quote. This is the exact opposite position from the majority of Western white theological tradition, which Goldwitzer recognizes as co-opted by the values of pagan empire from the time of Constantine. However, while ostensibly and often vociferously rejecting the possibility of revolution, that tradition has nevertheless been an enthusiastic supporter of one revolution in particular, namely the capitalist revolution. In an essay entitled, Why Black Theology?, Goldwitzer even describes this revolution as a, quote, revolution of the white, Christianized, Protestant peoples, end quote, that has achieved, quote, worldwide victory, end quote. 
transition to the capitalist economic foundation of modern society was drastic and violent in its overthrow of the status quo. But Goldwitzer points out it did not, in general, challenge Christianity's place in society, and so the churches accepted its legitimacy. They have not embraced the idea of socialist revolution because socialist criticism of religion seems to challenge their place in society. Second, a just revolution is theoretically possible. Although it will not carry much weight with those who are absolute pacifists, so to speak, Goldwitzer makes a compellingly commonsensical argument in support of this possibility. Admitting that it is very hard to find a war that meets the criteria of the just war tradition, he notes, quote, if there are few just wars, there are probably just as few just revolutions. But if there are any just wars, then there are also some just revolutions, end quote. In a set of theses entitled Socialismus and Revolution, Goldwitzer outlines criteria for a just revolution on analogy to the criteria for just war. It must aim at overthrowing an oppressive power. It must be a truly unavoidable and inevitable last resort. It cannot produce unnecessary suffering or employ means of indiscriminate killing. It cannot be motivated by desire for revenge. It must maintain the rights of the oppressed. And the decision for revolution must be made by a community rather than an individual. And this last point is crucial, for it determines that just revolution must develop organically from conditions that oppress a particular community. Only such a community is in a position to make a judgment about, for instance, whether revolution is truly unavoidable and inevitable, whether it will produce unnecessary suffering, and whether it will maintain the rights of that oppressed community. Third, and finally, revolutionary violence, although regrettable and indicative of the deep disorder that reigns in human society, is not a unique case. When the question of revolutionary violence arises, it is often treated as though one must choose between a violence-free situation on one hand and, on the other hand, a revolutionary situation where blood flows unchecked in the streets. This is a false choice, however. The status quo under imperial capitalism was built and is maintained by staggering amounts of violence. And those of us who live in Western societies benefit from that violence to greater or lesser extents. We are ineluctably and inextricably entangled in systems of violence. Even the most ostensibly benign and beneficent example of authority upholding the status quo, such as a police officer giving a ticket to enforce speed limits in a school zone, functions because of the threat of violence. Resist that authority and you will end up in jail or worse. And we heard uh, around in um, Raymond's paper earlier this uh, discourse about prison industrial complex that's up and running. This is a much more explicit and obvious version of violence embedded in the status quo. The actual choice, then, is between a situation where violence maintains an unjust status quo and a revolutionary situation where violence challenges and attempts to overthrow that unjust status quo. 
Furthermore, the question of whether there will be revolutionary violence ultimately rests with the powers that be, rather than with the revolutionary powers that would be. And this is a really important point that I think gets missed a lot. Everything comes down to whether those powers, the powers that be, choose to use violence to maintain their existing privilege against demands for revolutionary change. If they do so, then revolutionary violence may perhaps become necessary. As Goldwitzer says, quote, If force is to be used, then it can sooner be justified where it is applied to shattering unjust oppressive force than to maintaining it, end quote. Under such conditions, revolutionary violence ultimately serves love of neighbor. None of this is to suggest that violence is unequivocally good under certain conditions. Even when talking about the possibility of a just revolution, Golvitzer never envisions a revolution that is sin-free, as it were. He knows that we tread here on paths far from the good, the true, and the beautiful. But such is the character of human life under the condition of sin that sometimes violence, albeit inherently destructive and dehumanizing, is the necessary choice of the oppressed in resisting their oppressors. So I conclude with Golvitzer, quote, Violence brutalizes even though the oppressed cannot avoid it in their struggle. Limiting violence to a last resort and humanizing the methods of violence as much as possible are in the interests of the revolutionary movement, not only for reasons of expedience, but for retention of the humane, freedom-loving character of the movement itself. End quote. Thank you.